0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical-free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Well, good morning, friends. Happy New Year again, and uh, let me say thank you to Micah for that prayer. I know that we have kids with us, so if I lose you at some point during this... Because we all know that I can talk for a long period of time. Just think about Micah's prayer, because that's where we're landing the plane. All right? But uh, I thought, uh, as we gathered together on this New Year's Eve morning, uh, I, I would try and put a bow on our year. You see... We have, throughout this year, looked at a number of different themes that have all been interrelated, and they've all been connected together and building on one another, pushing us forward to think about a certain set of theological and biblical ideas. And so where have we been? Uh, Since some of you are new, let me recap that a little bit. We started this year thinking about the Great Commission. The Great Commission, found in Matthew's Gospel, says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And as we spent several weeks studying the Great Commission, we saw that this this idea permeates the entirety of Scripture. We saw that over the course of the series, the goal of making and maturing disciples making disciples through the spread of the gospel and maturing disciples through deeper reflection on the gospel, on theological ideas and on spiritual living, flowed from God's character, was present in the Abrahamic covenant, and was motivational force behind the apostles' ministry in the book of Acts and in their letters. The Great Commission was and is, we said, the singular mission of the church. So every individual Christian has a variety and varied things that they do and are called to by God. But when we gather together as God's people, we gather for the singular purpose of glorifying God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus. Having clarified this mission, we turned to the end of the Bible where we found in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation that there were seven letters dictated to the Apostle John from Jesus— And addressed to seven ancient churches. And as we looked at these letters, we found that Jesus commended and congratulated churches for a set of things, and that he warned and chastened churches for another set of things. We saw that they were commended when they displayed theological accuracy and depth, spiritual vitality, and a life that displayed the love of God to the community around them. And we saw that they were warned and chastened when they deviated from right doctrine or their lives displayed an incongruity with what they said they believed, either an incongruity about how they approached each other, how they approached the external world, or actually how they stood before God himself. And so after we concluded that series, we moved into looking at the book of Joshua a historical account of God's people in the Old Testament where they enact God's judgment and they push forward God's mission of conquering the promised land. And all the while, they're trying to do so by passing the baton from one generation, the generation of Moses that died in the wilderness, to the next generation, the one that would come after Joshua. And so they are trying to pass on God's covenant to the next generation. We saw much wisdom for today in this book and in the historical accounts of battles and miracles, land division and geopolitical strategy, we saw fundamentally that one must live by faith. And since one of the most frequently watched channels right now at this time of year is Hallmark, I should say it's not some sort of generic Hallmark faith in faith or faith in humanity. It wasn't ethereal or generic, rather it was a faith in the true and greater Joshua, the son of God, Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus Christ could save. But while in the book of Joshua we saw God save his people from physical enemies, we find in Jesus someone who saves us from spiritual dominions, demonic fallen angels, corruption and temptation, and from our own struggles with sin. Joshua captures the promised land through the shedding of the blood of God's enemies, but we found at the end of that series, that to the great surprise of Jesus' own closest friends and disciples, that he would allow us, the enemies of God, into the promised land through the shedding of his own blood. And with this conception of the gospel and with God's mission in mind, We turned to consider the Bible's preeminent missionary, the Apostle Paul, and prayers that he wrote down and sent out to churches, which he had planted, ministered to, and intended to visit. And we saw in these prayers how he loved these churches and how he instructed them for the advancement and the fulfillment of God's mission in their circumstances and in their geographic region. And then as the summer came to a close and autumn began, we turned to a deep study of 1 John, a letter which, to use our language, commended learning from and about Jesus Christ, loving like Jesus Christ, and living for Jesus Christ. And we found as we looked each week at this letter that John could barely go a sentence without doubling back on himself as he talked about one of those themes. And so he would go from talking about the importance of theology and how we need to think rightly about who God is and who we are, and before he was out of breath, it seemed like he had to double back onto how this knowledge of God should send us out of ourselves with God's love into the world. And it should motivate our lives to live for Jesus rather than for ourselves. And so we saw that doctrine was supposed to lead to love and love to mission. And mission drove us back to doctrine as we needed to answer questions like Micah said before he prayed. If we are to love God, we need to know who this God is. If we are to share God, we need to know who it is that we are sharing about. That's why Pastor Jim called the letter of 1 John discipleship material par excellence because it touches on the three factors that we generally think of as forming a healthy, holistic discipleship to learn, to love, and to live from, for, and about Jesus Christ. And at the end of that, we ask the question, but who is it that we are being discipled to? Are you being discipled to me, to Jim, to another pastor? Or are we discipled to somebody else? And so we turned from 1 John at the Christmas season into Luke 1 and 2 to ask a question of who this baby is that we celebrate every December 25th. 21st, that'd be a weird time. We looked to Luke 1 and 2 to see who Jesus was to hear prophecies made about him and the stories surrounding his miraculous birth, which set him apart from all other people. And we found in this series that he was to be the messianic, anointed, promised son of David, the king of the Jews. But we also saw that his kingdom would have no end, that it wouldn't be some sort of parochial kingdom of the sons and daughter of Abraham but rather that his kingdom would be ever-increasing, encompassing every tongue, tribe, and nation. That all in the world could come to know God through him, and that regardless of what secular or pagan realms thought about their worth and their value, they were all valuable before God and were offered in Jesus Christ justice and righteousness and the love of God. Now I hope that that review of our year thus far illustrates how we have been this year thinking about what it means to make and mature disciples, what it means to reflect on the very mission of the church, the purpose for why we are all here. And we have buttressed this thinking with teaching, curated songs, readings, and discipleship classes. And at the end of the year, I want to ask and answer one question about discipleship today. That question is, is it still possible to make and mature disciples in our world? Is it still possible in this cultural moment to teach people this book and the God that it points to? Or has the evolution of our culture hindered or fundamentally changed what it is that we do when we get together? Is our mission accomplishable? Or has how the world functions derailed God's plan for the church and for the world? Let's pray, and then we will strive to answer that question. Father in heaven, holy is your name. We have spent this morning already with the help and leadership of our band, hallowing your name. We have sung to you, we have prayed to you, and Father, we orient our hearts to you now. We do this because we want you to communicate to us. We want to continue in worshiping you as we reflect on this question, what it means to pursue the mission of the church as we move into 2024. We long for your kingdom, God, and we ask that you would build in us a greater longing for it yet still. But until it comes fully with the return of your son, we ask that you would continue to open our hearts and our minds, that your reign and rule would advance among our friends and family, neighbors and coworkers who do not yet believe. That those who do not know you would pass out of darkness and into the marvelous light of your son. So we ask that you would sanctify us for this task this morning so that we might glorify you. And pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, now, some of, you, some of you may have heard that question and might have thought it seems irrelevant. I mean, you guys are, in a sense, not necessarily the target audience. On New Year's Eve, you're here. You're already at church. You come to a church where our explicit mission is to make immature mature disciples. So maybe you already understand that this is still possible. But let me make the question a little bit harder. Let me clarify it a little bit more why this might be something tough for us to think about when we exit this building. You see, there are many issues that affect local churches in the pursuit of this mission. Epidemics of anxiety and social erosion can be read in the news nearly every day. There is decreasing trust in our political system and the mediating institutions like universities and churches as we build up to what looks like another contentious election year. Political polarization has fueled talk of a national divorce. A revolution of the self and how we conceptualize sexuality has undermined what it means to be human and has found its way into school systems, even down to the lowest grade levels and challenged the very notion of parental rights. And meanwhile, national debates over abortion, guns, foreign policy, national and personal debt, all still continue as they have. I get anxious just listing those things. And so often, these issues are interrelated. They are complex issues rather than simple issues, meaning they do not have one particular cause, nor is there a solution that easily deals with the issue in its entirety. A simple issue is something where you have an answer, you look at the issue, and once you apply the answer to it, that problem's solved. But a complex issue is when an issue is connected to plethora, myriad, other issues. And when you start to change one thing revolving with that issue, it's like grabbing one node, one connection on a spider web, and as you lift it up, all the geography of the spider web begins to change. All the other issues start to shift and take on a different perspective. The ground changes under your feet. And each of these issues actually challenges the very notions of the primary questions that every human being has to answer in order to make their way in this world. Now, many of us don't ask and answer these questions explicitly. We just simply adopt the answers through osmosis of the culture we were born into. But there are five philosophical questions that guide our lives and our understanding of the world. The question of metaphysics, or ultimate reality. What exists? What is existence? And why do we exist? The question of epistemology, or knowing. What do you know? What can you know? And how can you grow in knowledge? The question of anthropology, or what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? What is the relationship between us as humans? Where did we come from? And why, among all the other physical animal creatures that I see, do we seem to have a unique set of intellectual and spiritual powers as we make our way in this world? The question of ethics or the good life, what does it mean to live well? How can we flourish? And what, if anything, do we owe to each other? And the questions of politics or society, how ought we to organize ourselves as groups for the most flourishing among us? How ought we to live when we encounter disagreement? And are there any authorities out there that we can each rely on together when we find disagreement in order to come to common ground? The events that I listed and alluded to challenge these five questions. And as life and the attendant questions to examining it are challenged and dramatically changed, that is where we come across our question this morning. If there is no common ground on what exists, how we know, what it means to be human, how we should organize ourselves together, or what even a good life is, then can we really make disciples in the same way we always have? Does our approach, strategy, or tactics need to change? In one sense, the answer has to obviously be yes. If the questions have changed, if the ground has shifted under our feet, then yes, in some sense, they must change. The apologetic and evangelistic questions of a previous generation are now secondary to just establishing a common understanding of life. But in another sense, no. For the church has always encountered such upheaval. You thought COVID was bad? The Black Death wiped out a sizable percentage, 40% of European population, and yet the church survived. You thought political upheaval was bad. Have you heard of the War of the Roses? The church has always faced upheaval and uncertainty, and I want to spend the rest of our time together thinking about what Scripture tells us we can do to grow as disciples in the midst of such upheaval and uncertainty. And to do that, I would like to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We'll take, in contrast to what we've been doing much of the year, we're going to take a short section. Not two chapters, just two verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you meet me in Romans chapter 12? Here Paul writes, "'I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect.'" Now, in our time together this morning, I want to look at three things we see in these two verses. Living as a sacrifice, resisting worldly conformity, and the transformation of our hearts through our minds. So what does it mean to live as a sacrifice? And I suppose it might be helpful, because I don't know where each of us comes from as we enter this church this morning, as we approach this text this morning. So let me... Work backwards a little bit and start with just understanding of what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice, common in Jewish traditions, was an animal or sometimes grain or wine offered either in death or dedication to God. That's the simple definition. As such, if you read the Old Testament passages dealing with how animals were to be sacrificed, you find out very quickly that it was a bloody and hot affair, meaning that you killed an animal, draining it of its blood, and you lit a fairly sizable fire. If you guys have ever barbecued, think about barbecuing an entire cow. You have to have a big fire. That means it was intense, full of blood and flame. And as quarts of blood were spilled and as the flame consumed the carcass of the animal, the intensity of what you experienced was intended to communicate the intensity of the rupture between man and God. Sin had come in and it had divided us from our Creator. So one theological dictionary says of sacrifice that the sacrificial system offered a way for people to atone for sin. To give thanks or praise to God for blessing, to complete purification rituals, to dedicate themselves in worship to God. These were all means for the community to maintain its relationship with the Lord. Since the wages of sin was death, the sacrifice must involve death. But interestingly enough, Paul modifies our understanding of sacrifice with the word living. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice then? Why is it a living sacrifice? The first thing that we need to note, then, is that the only reason we can give a living sacrifice is because something else, or more accurately, someone else has already died in our place. The reason why chapter 12 of the book of Romans is not a bloody affair like descriptions in the book of Leviticus is because the bloody affair took place in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus of Nazareth hung on a Roman cross as the sacrifice for our sins, And his sacrifice, then, allows us to make a sacrifice of life, of a giving of myself not to atone for my sins, but in grateful response for the atonement already made. And there's an important escalation that we need to recognize here. You see, when, we, when you sacrifice in a way that brings about death, maybe even our own death, we are sacrificing in a way that involves a momentary and singular decision. You encounter a situation, you make a decision to act, you act, and guess what? Your job, by definition of the word death, is now done in the circumstance, whether you succeeded or failed. That's what it means to die for something. But Paul here is talking about a living sacrifice, living for something. It has to be more than a singular, momentary decision. It has to involve every day of our lives, every breath we take— The only analogy I can think of for this would actually be that of a healthy and faithful marriage. When I do marriage counseling of any kind, I like to uh, display my grammatical nerdery, and I like to dissect the word decision. Because when a young man proposes to a young woman, he is making a decision for her. He is, of course, choosing her. But actually, the word decision is the combination of two French words, scission. What's scission? It means to cut. So somebody who is precise with precision, they cut before something. Ever heard measure twice, cut once? You measure on the front end, you cut on the back end. That's what makes it accurate. An incision is to cut into. Circumcision is to cut around. Decision is to cut off. So when you think about the nature of marriage, when you think about making a decision, it is not just the proposal to one particular woman, but the cutting off of all other women, all other options. I would say to the young men in here, if you can't handle that, then don't propose. Easy as that. I would say to the young women in here, if you can't handle that, don't say yes problem solved. And you know, when you get married, you experience a lot of freedom. But there are also boundaries that come with marriage. Because if you are choosing someone, then there is actually a particular thought which is not allowed to enter your head if you are faithfully married. And it is this thought. I can do better. If you, in a faithful marriage, think, I can do better, you have poured corrosive acid on the commitment on which the marriage is founded. Because, as soon as you have that thought, the I can do better is always of someone else. But you were supposed to have made a decision, a cutting off of all other options. The reason why I lay this out is because then when we understand our vows, we understand that they cannot be a momentary thing, a singular thing. They cannot be the conclusion of romantic whimsy. Our entire vows are about this. I do promise to love and cherish in good times and bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for what? Forsaking all others keeping myself only unto you for so long as we both shall live. When we make a decision in that way, we essentially are saying with our lives, come what may. And in order to have a healthy marriage, you must wake each morning thinking, in a sense, those words, come what may, this is the person I have chosen. Come what may, the bar- barren womb or the plentiful quiver. Come what may, economic hardship or an embarrassment of riches. Come what may, health or cancer. Come what may, the sharpest mind or cognitive decline. Come what may, the one I chose is mine. And that, friends, is what God, through Paul, is talking about here. It is that come what mayness. The singularity of directing our life towards one person. A life given to God, because come what may, Christ went to the cross for us. And unlike us in marriage, and unlike us as 2023 ends and 2024 begins, Christ knew exactly what he was getting himself into. Thus, on the night before he was crucified, you can find him in the Gospels, on his knees, sweating blood as he thought not just about the pain of the cross, but the burden of our sins on his shoulders. A famous hymn personifies it, saying, and at that point, God turned his face away. And I should note, since I brought up Christ at this point, that in living for God, we are not doing something more than our Savior has already done for us. I did not mean to in- communicate that when Christ died on the cross he was making a singular momentary decision rather Christ led in order to be that sacrifice for us an entire life of perfect obedience Scholars estimate Jesus lived about 33 years seem fair 33 years is 12,053 days Or differently 289,700 or 278 hours, 17,356,680 minutes lived as a sacrifice of perfect obedience to the Father for us. You see, we are called to live as a sacrifice because the one who died as a sacrifice lived that life for us, before us. And so Paul calls us to this kind of an offering, this kind of worship, this kind of life, one of grateful response. That's the theology behind it, but we need to ask the how, right? How is it that I live that grateful response? Well, Paul gives us two words in this text to modify our living sacrifice. Holy, which is paired with acceptable and spiritual. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness is to be set apart. It means to be holy and completely dedicated to one thing. In other words, we are not to give ourselves to anything else in the way that we give ourselves to God. We are set apart for him and him alone. And by the way, he will not share us. In the book of Exodus, God says, My name is Jealousy. Now, in our world, jealousy is a bad thing because it seems to infringe upon who we are. When somebody is jealous for our attention, we want to back up a little bit, right? Except for the fact that the reason why we feel that way is because when that person is jealous for us, often we were not made for them. But we were made for God. And He is rightly jealous for us. And this doesn't mean that he doesn't give us to other people, but rather he gives us to people and things in appropriate measure. And so I give myself to God as creature and servant, and he has given me to a wife as husband, friend, and lover, to children as father, to friends and companions, as one who will mourn with those who mourn and who will rejoice with those who rejoice. If I give myself to my wife, my job or my hobby in the same way I am to give myself to God, I commit idolatry. I am not setting myself apart. Therefore I am not pursuing holiness. The second word is spiritual. We might be tempted to think of spiritual as a synonym a synonym as a synonym for immaterial, but we know that that can't be the case because Paul says that our spiritual worship is what offering our bodies the physical part of who we are. Spiritual can't just be, then, some sort of connection to our emotions or some feeling of soulfulness. It involves presenting our bodies. The way Paul uses it, then, the word spiritual means to communicate, or it communicates a method and orientation towards God. He says it this way in opposition to the flesh in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to other, each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do them will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Notice again that it can't be a division between material and immaterial, spiritual as opposed to physical, because the sins that Paul lists in Galatians 5 include sins that come from within us, not just things we do with our bodies. If he highlights sins like envy and jealousy and impurity for us, those start inside. They're not matters of physical until we act on them. Notice as well that Paul concludes by saying that the flesh has been crucified, pointing back to Christ, and says that we now walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. This attaches to the Hebrew concept of walk and life as mirroring one another. You see, for the Hebrews, when you walk some way, you have to be going in a particular direction with a particular intention. You have to head where you're going and know where you're going. It has to be purposeful. So, too, someone's life had to be purposeful, and it had to be rightly directed. Our discipleship, then, we might say, is a holistic offering of our bodies, or individually, of my body to God, in which the desires of the flesh are rejected and the desires of the Spirit are pursued. If discipleship is about following Jesus, then we follow Jesus by following the Holy Spirit. Now, in some sectors of evangelical Christianity, when you hear somebody talking about following the Spirit, they mean something that's very free-form, unencumbered. It lacks structure. But I just want to point out that while the Spirit moves where He wills, and His movements can seem, at times to us, random or maybe even arbitrary, We have to keep in mind that the Spirit also inspired the Word. And He inspired the Word that we might know God. And so we will never find an accurate understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus apart from this book. We must be students of this book in order to follow the Spirit and in order to therefore follow Christ. Paul pivots slightly at this point, to talking about not conforming to the world. And let me descend again into a little bit of grammatical nerdery. We dissected the word decision. Here's a little bit more grammar for you. What you see there in be conformed is a passive verb. That means something is acting on you and me. The instruction then in the passive verb is to not allow the intention of the thing acting. That's what's going on. He's saying, don't allow this to happen— to you, because something is acting on you. What is the something? Well, uh, the version I'm reading out of is the English Standard Version. That might be what many of you are reading, and it translates the word world. They chose that word, the translators of this version of the Bible, and it makes a lot of sense. They're trying to draw a parallel between what Paul is talking about here in Romans 12, and what John talks about throughout his gospel and letters, and so they want you to see the connections between how John talks about world and how Paul talks about world. And I very rarely do this because I don't like to uh, play around in the Greek and Hebrew language often in sermons, especially when I'm uh, challenging a word choice, and I don't do that for two reasons— One reason is because um, I learned Greek and Hebrew from a bunch of people who were sitting in the room when they picked that word. So it feels a little bit like I'm talking bad about my professors behind their back. The second reason is I don't want you to think you can't trust your English translations. The Bibles we have, I would say, are imperceptible in any difference between the original monographs. We believe the original writings of Paul, John, Matthew, Luke were inspired by God, breathed out from him. And I would say the Bible you hold in your hand, or maybe you're looking at on your phone, is imperceptible in any difference from them. It is, for all intents and purposes, the exact same book. So I don't want to cause any doubt about the Scriptures, but I do want to say... The word that Paul uses here is actually different than the word in John, and I think it causes us to think differently about what Paul is saying. When John talks about the world, he talks about the cosmos, and cosmos is a word that encapsulates geography or realm. When you think about the world in that way, you think about maybe planet Earth. You think about a thing, but the word Paul uses here is I own, which is a word that symbolizes time. Most of the times you see it in the Bible, it's going to be translated age. If I were to take this verse out of the rest of Scripture, disregard the idea of trying to connect what Paul is saying here to what John is saying in John chapter 1, I would, instead of choosing the word world here, I would choose the phrase spirit of the age. The Germans like the term zeitgeist, captures the same thing, and if you've ever taken a philosophy class, you might have heard the term worldview. That is what is being captured here. And the reason why I prefer those alternative translations is because a worldview or the spirit of the age is something we often get without noticing. It's something that often runs in the background of all of our other thinking. So the answers to questions about things like, what is marriage or who am I, are actually fit within a framework of worldview or the spirit of the age that we get simply by existing in our culture. And the reason why that is important is because we then can uncritically adopt things from the spirit of our age. We can sometimes pick them out. I mentioned before the revolution of the self and sexuality that has taken place in our culture. Lying behind it is a worldview called expressivism or expressive individualism. And that worldview says the fundamental decider of what is true and false is the individual that what I feel or express deep within me is the fundamental authority for what is true. Not history, not philosophy, not the wisdom of Scripture, not even, as our culture would have had us 20 years ago believe, science. None of those things can arbitrate truth unless I delegate to them the authority to do so. And so from that worldview, we have received issues that plague our culture, like what to do with abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. The reason why I bring them up is because those are things that most evangelical Christians can spot the problem in pretty quickly. But, believe you me, there is also a Christian version of expressivism where we might reject those sorts of things, but we adopt enough of the spirit of the age to twist Scripture or ignore other parts of Scripture so that we can get our preconceived lives and the pattern of the life that we want and claim that God baptizes and blesses it. We, too, if we are not careful, are just as guilty of deciding for ourselves that Scripture can speak truly in one book and not truly in another book. We can discount some things while lifting up other things. Now, as we think about that, then, it might be helpful to reframe what Paul said passively into a more active way. So if we were to take the phrase, do not be conformed to the world, and we were to substitute it for something active and put in the phrase, spirit of the age, I think we could translate this, resist the spirit of the age. Now, if you're tracking with that exegetical move, we can move on to the third thing that Paul talks about in here. The third admonition he makes If we are to resist the spirit of the age, to not be conformed to it, we are not conformed to it, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here again, we find a passive verb, but this one we are cooperating with. We are cooperating with being transformed by renewing our minds. What does this mean? Well, we can look elsewhere for Paul to unpack this idea in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice, or greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice again, the connection between practicing impurity. We can experience temptation, but it's when we give in to the temptation, when we practice it, when we actualize it in our bodies and our bodies become participants in temptation and sin that it begins to become what Paul described earlier in that passage, that it begins to harden our hearts and make us ignorant to what God says. It darkens our mind, Paul will say in Romans 1. He continues in verse 20, "'But that is not the way you learned Christ, "'assuming that you have heard about him "'and were taught him.'" As the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. By contrast to practicing impurity, we are supposed to put off and cease sinful activities. We put on the new self. And what does this mean? Paul attaches it here to something like a prototype and archetype relationship. You see, we are to go back, in some sense, to the prototype, a return to the likeness of God. That's how God made Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. It is he crafted them in his likeness. And the original lie of all of this world was that we were not actually made like God. And so the serpent comes into the garden and he lies to Adam and Eve and says, if you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. What's the problem? They already were as like God as they should have been. And so the prototype is Adam We are being invited to return to him, but it is also a pursuit of the archetype. If the prototype, proto meaning first, archetype means original. In other words, the blueprint. See, Adam might chronologically have been the first person, but he was not the blueprint from which all people are made. Adam was in the image of God, but there was one who was the image of God. Is the foreknown person of Christ, who in Colossians, Paul described as having the fullness of God pleased to dwell in him. He goes on in Colossians 3 to fill out our idea a little bit more. Colossians 3, 7 through 10. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, speaking about sin. But now you must put away all, or put all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. How are our minds renewed? They are renewed by the exercise of our bodies in worship and by setting our minds on the one who created us. On seeking, understanding, and relationship with Christ in his word. This knowledge of the Creator, I would argue, like we argued throughout our 1 John series, is a knowledge that must come from and build love. We look to the Word of God to see God more clearly. But to see Him more clearly, we desire to love Him more ardently. We can say, then, that our discipleship requires breaking off the sinful practices which might enslave and darken our minds— so that our minds might be unhindered in their renewal as we seek to know God better. Now, I admit, I started talking about how to be a disciple in this present cultural moment, and yet the two things that I just gave to you that we looked at were true in Paul's day, they're true in our day. So let me think a little bit more practically, maybe, about how we can pursue Christ as we enter a new year. Let me advocate one practice with Scripture. When you come to Scripture in this new year, however you do it, if you do like a read through the Bible in a year program, or you want to study a book, or you bounce in and out of a devotional, here's what I would like to challenge you with. Go to Scripture to let it correct you on life's biggest questions. When we read the Bible, we want to hear God speak, right? Well, if we want to hear God speak, we must be open to critique and correction. But so often I fear that many of my friends, and maybe this is just one of the casualties of being a seminary graduate, so often I feel like many of my friends go to Scripture and find how it challenges all of those around them. So I, what, did you do, what did you cover in your quiet time this morning? Well, I looked at this verse and look at how it disproves Mormonism. Or look at how it challenges the evolutionary worldview. Or look at this or look at that. And how it points out the flaws in other people's thinking. Sure, it certainly does that. I, too, believe that the Bible does not teach many of the things that you believe it does not teach and challenges many of the viewpoints that you believe it challenges. But when we come to the Scriptures, our first and foremost goal must be to hear them speak to us, which means to hear it correct me before it corrects my neighbor. To hear it correct me before it corrects somebody outside of my particular theological tribe. That's what I would advocate you do with the scriptures as you come to them in this coming year. But I would also advocate this. In order to seek God, we must embody our discipleship. We were made, both soul and body, in an inseparable union. The only thing that separates you from your body is death. It's not good to be separated, and in the kingdom, they will be reunified, which is why Christ, when he returned to speak to his disciples after his crucifixion, after the resurrection, when he came back, he was in his physical body with the same holes in his wrists and feet. He took food and nourished a physical body after the resurrection as before the resurrection. But doing things with our body means doing things in time. Because our bodies are locked in time, which means as we enter this new year, if we're going to embody our discipleship, we must rethink our priorities. Because regardless of how much money is in either of your bank accounts or what title you have at your office, there's one thing that makes every single one of us equal in resources. And that's at midnight tonight, when this guy turns over, every single one of us only has 24 hours left in the day. Time is the only resource which, once spent, can never be gotten back, no matter how hard you work. Spend some money, put in some overtime, problem solved. But time, moment succeeds moment, and are never back again. Our lives must be rightly directed, and our loves rightly prioritized, so that our heart can be rightly ordered in order to pursue Christ in our discipleship. Now those, like I said, are somewhat personal. What does that have to do with whatever turmoil we face in 2024? Because when 2023 began, Pastor Jim, the elders, myself, the staff, we didn't know what we were going to face. We didn't know that the roof would be torn off of this building halfway through the year and that we would be displaced into another building. We didn't know how this year was going to go, and we don't know, friends, how next year will go. Will those two things, will seeking correction and seeking Christ's voice in Scripture and will embody my discipleship do anything to change the world in 2024? Will it have any effect? In one sense, obviously no. You can get up every day for the next 365 days. You can read your Bible from... Be, while it's dark out until the sun rises and you can be on your knees every evening praying for the last hour of the day, and you know what will probably not happen? The outcome of the election probably won't change. There will probably be no soothing of political polarization in our national climate. And I doubt that it would halt the mass erosion of society in the sexual revolution, in college campuses, and in the opioid epidemic. Sorry to break it to you, but that's just what I doubt will happen. But in another sense, maybe doing that would actually change everything because it changed you. It changed the one who encountered those situations. Maybe I can't stem the tide of national and global maladies, but I can be faithful where he placed me. Maybe I can't stop social erosion, but maybe i can build community in my neighborhood in my small group in my family maybe i can't stop a half century long sexual revolution and turn back the tide but maybe i can live faithfully to the countercultural sexual ethic that jesus christ gave his church and in doing so i can embody true humanity and treat people with true dignity as made in the image of God, rather than things to be used and disposed. And maybe I cannot stop the nihilistic unmooring of reality, but maybe I can seek true knowledge and the true creator of the universe in his word. Maybe that changes enough to change how I experience 2024. Friends, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that, as was read before, though the nations rage, you sit on your throne. We thank you that, though, it seems often in our world, wickedness and chaos triumph, that Christ has resurrected. And we thank you, even though it might be concerning or confusing to us, that though you, the God of truth and the God who created all things, you have put us in charge of making and maturing disciples. You have put fallen, broken, but redeemed people in charge of advancing your word and your gospel in this world. And so, Father, we are grateful for that responsibility And we pray for help with that task that we might personally grow as disciples and that we might have the courage, the fortitude, and the wisdom that comes from your word, your spirit, and is found in ardent prayer to pursue making more disciples to the glory of your name for your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray all of these things for our resurrected and enthroned Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.